going to be continuing our present course and speed in the book of James as we tackle another three verses this week. In James 1, 9 through 11, I invite you to be turning there. It's also on the front of your outlines if you have one. And we're going to be looking at a particular passage that I probably in some ways could have tackled in our series we finished a few weeks ago on Christian simplicity. James is talking about money in some ways here, but we will find as I hammered in our simplicity series, the money situation that people face isn't because money is evil or even money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is. And it's godliness or a lack thereof with our money is what always the problem might be. I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's word together here in James 1, 9-11, if you're able to stand. James writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. Father, personally, I've had a busy week this past week and I'm honest, I feel like I'm, what I'm offering here is not enough, so I'm going to plead and rely on your grace again, as I always should. Holy Spirit, would you pour out abundantly over all of us? Father, would you redeem hearts and lives today? I pray that you would save hearts. I pray that you would bring people away from any darkness they might be in, that you would expose them in the light. Father, that you would work salvation in hearts today, but only you can bring all these things. So use me as you would wish and get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. Father, we love you and we would thank you for this. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> So I'll just pick up where I left off last week. If you were here last week, I told you that I had a few weeks where I listened to conservative talk radio while living in Moscow, working for Pepsi. And I told you that I quickly discovered that I didn't like it. So in order to redeem my travel time, I began an addictive habit that I have now of downloading sermons to listen on my iPod which I played through the car I was in. I had known of one pastor in particular that I had discovered a few years prior while looking around on YouTube, a website where you can look at videos. I remembered his name, I looked him up, and found that all of his sermons could be downloaded and listened to for free. So I began listening to a series that he was in at the time on the book of Esther, and after that he started another series that I really didn't, wasn't interested in the topic, but all of his sermons were free, so I just started binge listening to him. I've probably easily listened to over a hundred of his sermons, 
while in Moscow listening to his teaching on the books of Esther, the book of Genesis, the book of Ruth, the book of Luke, as well as some topical series. This was a celebrity pastor. He authored several books, big megachurch, thousands of people attending his church weekly, multiple services every weekend. Whenever he didn't preach, which was far and few between, he would invite another celebrity pastor or a theology professor or a pastor author like John Piper or Rick Warren. Other times this pastor would let campus pastors preach. So this is, again, a big megachurch. Literally, it's like a small denomination. <laughs> On most Sundays, this pastor would preach live at one campus, which we'll call a local church, and then he would live satellite feed to the many campuses, over 15 churches, I believe, in its prime. So on Saturday, on Sundays that this pastor wasn't preaching, there might be several options I had in downloading what, author, or what pastor I wanted to listen to. I quickly discovered one of them, a one particular guy that I liked and listened to him. His name was Dave Bruscus. Dave was a campus pastor at a church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this megachurch grew, though. Apparently other people liked Dave. And Dave eventually was invited to take a more prominent role in the entire church leadership in Seattle, Washington. Dave also authored a book and released it. Eventually, the primary pastor of the church came under scrutiny. He was accused of plagiarism in one of his books. He was accused of being a bit bullish in how he handled church leadership. He resigned in the fall of 2014. Meanwhile... Dave kind of became the lead pastor of the church. By December of 2014, so in four months, Dave and the elders at this big church decided to disband the megachurch organization and encouraged all the local campuses to continue on as independent local churches pastored by their campus pastors. Dave went back to Albuquerque after accepting an offer by the campus he had once pastored to be their full-time independent local pastor, they see about 800 or more so people, I believe, every Sunday. Four mo three months after December of 2014, in March of 2015, my brother Aaron and his wife Kayla lost their infant son after four months. I didn't know what to say or do, and or how to even begin to console, and as the pastor in the family, I had fears of being the one to say something profound or whatever. I remembered from listening to Pastor Dave that he and his wife had lost a son only after a, a small amount of time of his son's living to congenital heart failure. The book that Dave had authored was called Dear Son, and he and his wife have four daughters, and the one son they had passed away. So Pastor Dave's book, I read it uh, right before I had Calvin, it's really good. It was basically all the things that Pastor Dave wanted to teach his son that he never had, and so he wrote a book to try to teach young men to make good decisions. And so I had this harebrained idea within a few months after my nephew passed away. I found an email link to Pastor Dave on their church website, and I emailed him and asked him personally if he would consider talking with my brother and maybe sharing his personal experience. Uh, I thought... Dave and my brother could relate better than I could relate to him, and I trusted Dave's experience to color well any godly advice he might have. I thought the chances were slim. This was a published author, a lead pastor at a big megachurch for a while, still the pastor of a big church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was certain I probably 
maybe reach a secretary and not make it through an email screen. Oh, Pastor Dave doesn't have time for this, and that would be that. I was wrong. I got a personal email back from Pastor Dave with a desire to connect with my brother, and my brother ended up being the one unwilling to connect with him, probably because my brother didn't know Pastor Dave from Adam, hadn't listened to him, as like I did, probably didn't think a guy from Albuquerque could help him in South Carolina. And even though there was the connection concerning they both had diseased young sons, this demonstrated to me, though, that Pastor Dave, despite my preconceptions of him being somewhat of a celebrity pastor, big city, published author, was nevertheless humble enough to connect with a no-name from nowhere like me. The idea that James is talking about in his book is this reality, that Pastor Dave, when it comes to his status before God, has nothing over me, and I have nothing over or under him. We're both brothers in Christ. Now, in other ways, Pastor Dave has lots of experience over me as a pastor. He's been in ministry for many years, even before he or his church joined the megachurch in Seattle. But any status that he has as a big megachurch pastor or, or lack thereof status that I might have as a small rural church pastor does not figure into our relationship as brothers in Christ. James opens this part of his book like this in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. We see here that James starts this off, Let the lowly brother, which means Christian or believer, as James starts this entire book by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers. So some commentators lose sleep and they ask James, Is he contrasting a lowly brother in his exaltation, against a rich non-brother or a non-believer and his humiliation. In other words, is the word brother there still implied after rich? Or does the fact that the rich is boasting in his humiliation, that being a negative term, as well as the missing word brother, mean that James is contrasting a lowly believer with a rich non-believer? Does that make sense? Some would say that verse 11 and its ending only strongly suggests that James is indeed contrasting a lowly believer with a rich non-believer, but there is about the same amount of people who believe that these are both believers, and that's the view I take. Furthermore, as James comes back to his themes often in the book, the idea of the rich person will come back, and James continues to really not have good things to say about them. They oppress the poor in the church, and they incite church leaders to favoritism. What we must understand, though, is that James is undoubtedly writing in a very Jewish wisdom literature fashion. So like the book of Proverbs or the book of Ecclesiastes, Jewish wisdom, excuse me, Jewish wisdom literature often employs contrasts, hyperboles, that is, exaggerated statements, not always to be taken literally, Generalized absolutes. And the biggest generalized absolute example that I can think of in Proverbs is, for example, that well-known verse, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Yet how many parents do we know who train their children well, but the child has departed? 
Does this verse give us reason to blame the parents, or does this verse give us reason to doubt the Scripture? Or could it be that this verse is speaking principally, generally, but not necessarily promising an absolute? Does that make sense? We are to read Proverbs generally as good principles, not necessarily as promised inevitable outcomes. Generally speaking, parents who raise up their children in the way they should go, those children do not depart. Adam and Eve had God himself as a parent. Guess what Adam and Eve did? The point being, when James may imply rich people are bad, James is not giving us reason to believe that literally every single rich person is bad. Generally speaking, rich people may have an ungodly attachment to money, but just as much do we witness poor people who have an ungodly lust for money and things they don't have. So, let us not shoehorn what James says here. Does, does this make sense? What James is encouraging people who take their status from their wealth is to come to the great equalizing truth of the gospel. Jesus is the great humbler and the great humiliator. Mary says of God sending Jesus in Luke 1, 52 and 53, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich, rich he has sent away empty. And so what poor believers must glory or must boast in, must exalt in, is the fact that Jesus exalts the humble. Jesus is for the humble. And to be identified in Jesus is a free gift. And it is to be identified as a brother of Jesus, inheritor of the promises of God in a son or a daughter of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, says Paul in Romans 8. And if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Thus, for the person of low means or low worldly significance, they are to glory in being the child of God. See, you cannot say, I am nothing because I have no cash, when you leave out the part about inheriting the kingdom of God and doing life forever with him and play, having all your sins forgiven and being given a new nature, given a place in the kingdom of God. That's like saying in the middle of a mansion, owning all things at your disposal, I'm so poor, I lost my $5 bill. Sometimes, this is hard for the poor, poor person. Because we are so wired to find our value and where the world finds value. Because sometimes for the poor person, it's rather unsettling to hear that our value is in the presently unseen. And so we might say, that's great, but I would still like to own my house. <laughs> I would still like to have my bills paid off. I would still like to know what it's like to not have to worry about money every day. So to hear that we are exalted in God's eyes brings the whole notion of don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good into play. But Jesus is not only for the poor, he identified with the poor. He came in the humblest of ways, lived the humblest of lives, he had no home, his first bed was a manger, he was of lowly estate, not educated in the best of Bible colleges, well actually he was, he was educated by God himself, 
not rolling in the dough, though. And though he was a famous preacher, he was marginalized, not thought much of by the in crowd, the rich people, the high and mighty people, the high in society. The rich believer finds their humiliation in God's kingdom. In that for the believing rich, they serve a God who became poor. However, Paul tells us that the rich people can identify with Christ also. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What does Paul mean here? When was Jesus rich? Whenever he was on his throne in heaven before he came to walk on earth, and after he ascended as well. You see, Jesus can identify with the poor person, knowing how it is to be in want, to be spat on, to be belittled, to be thought insignificant, and not to be given thought of. But Jesus will identify with the rich believer in that Jesus knows how to not find value in his status, but rather to humble himself. If James is talking to a rich believer in this passage, he is encouraging him to boast or glory in his humiliation. And that whenever he becomes a believer, his status is not socially better than the poor person. His status is equal as the poorest of Christians. His status and what makes him, perhaps a celebrity pastor or a published author, he's not to be self-enamored, but rather answer and talk to another believer in the faith as if he were merely the neighbor next door, with no prejudices in between them, because there isn't. There is only Christ between them. And Jesus can identify with the rich person who must reorient their thinking to know that simply because the world might find the richer and the more wealthy much more appealing and preferred over the poor, there's no such social clout before God. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how Christ was exalted in humiliation. If you ever read the book of John, that's what I've been doing in my personal time this year, you will just see how often Jesus states things like, Before Abraham was, I am. Or Moses wrote of me. Or Jesus has the authority of God to forgive sins, and so he also testifies to himself being the Messiah. And the people just laugh at him or call him a blasphemer or both. You think you're God, Jesus? We started our study in James and we saw a few passages where Jesus' immediate family thought him crazy. And egged him on. Yet Jesus is God. And because he took the form of a servant, emptied himself, he was humiliated. In order to effectively identify with all of our status before God, he had to become us. The humiliation of the rich, like Jesus, who for our sake became poor. It is humbling of himself to the point of death on a cross. And then Paul continues... Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want you to see here that James is not directly attacking wealth so much as he is encouraging believers of all statuses to realize the proper perspective, God's perspective of who they are. Nobody can say to God, I'm a very rich Christian compared to that guy. God would say so. I own everything. What does your wealth have to do with me? Well, didn't you bless me, God, in order that I might be rich? Even if I did, God would say, it was not so you could curry favor with me. (laughs) I'm no respecter of persons. Rather, as the prophet Jeremiah prophesied, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. When believers come together... We glory in knowing God. Sounds like a song we sing today. All other things are irrelevant when it comes to how we interact with one another. Let not the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall, falls, there we go, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is practical, concise, and illustrative. His practical wisdom is being concisely stated in that the lowly boast in their exaltation, however mistreated they might be on earth, they are sons and daughters of the living God, inheritors of the kingdom. The rich boast in their humiliation, and however highly respected, And all the favors they are given in the world, when the rich come to God, they realize that they are worshiping humble servant King Jesus who saved them in their poverty. And though the rich might be tempted to think that they can save themselves with their wealth. The second part of verse 10 and verse 11, though, is now illustrative. The second part of verse 10 and the first part of verse 11 comes from other parts of the Bible. Job knows this to be true, and states in Job 14, 1-2, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. David encourages us, though, in Psalm 37, Fret not evildoers because of evildoers, but be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend righteousness. Don't fret of evildoers. Trust in the Lord and do good. Befriend faithfulness. Isaiah 40, 6-8 says, A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of God stands forever. What about Psalm 103? 
15 through 17, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. A man's days are as quick as a season of grass that withers. Because of that, we can fret not evildoers, trust in God and defend righteousness, know that the word of God stands forever, and his love endures forever. And the idea back in James is to again put things in perspective. Lowly person, rich person, they're on equal footing when it comes to God. Because in the presence of God, we know the transience of our lives. In fact, the psalmist in the 49th Psalm scraps the illustration or the metaphor, and he says it outright, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And so I believe James starts this illustration with a general picture of all people. He says, Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. And then James hones in on the sin. So that, that so easily entangles people with pursuing wealth, he says, So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And the word pursuits is very important. Again, there were a few times I could have entered the book of James for our topical series on simplicity, because this is what James is driving to, the pursuit of our lives. If we are pursuing godliness, as Paul tells us over in 1 Timothy 6, when he talks about the root of all kinds of evil being the love of money, our pursuit should be the simple focus on Jesus and godliness, not money. What a sad life for the person who is not content because of their money. As quick as life is, even. See, James tells us in James 4.14, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. For that life to be lived in the midst of pursuing wealth. What a sad way to go. Because the material status of one's life does not matter in God's economy. The spiritual status does. And again, as I hammered in the Simplicity series, this, doesn't mean, or this does not mean that we should neglect, shun, or look down on money. Because the concern is not about money, it's about godliness. It's about what you do with it. Are you godly with it? And again, both the lowly and the rich can sin with money, whether it be lusting and envious of what you do not have, or misusing and selfish pride in what you do have. So what are you pursuing? The rich man, sinning with money, will fade away amidst his pursuits. Pastor Dave is still pastoring at what's now called North Church Albuquerque, still seeing lots of people. The pastor from Seattle who resigned amid scandal spent a year or two in soul-searching, counseling, and on hiatus. 
He's opened up a church in the Phoenix area, and as of this day, I don't know the attendance, but I do know it already has two services every Sunday. Time will tell if his repentance was genuine. He does have a rigorous leadership in place to where he answers to a lot of people. Sounds like a good route to take to keep him from falling into the same sins that plagued him at his other position. What time will also tell if Pastor Dave and this other pastor and you and me will not be what's in our bank account? That's not relevant. It's of material use, certainly. But in God's economy, whenever you open up to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, what you don't get is how much Abel, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, and the many in that great hall of faith, you do not learn how much money they have. You learned about what their faith in God did. What does your faith do? You see, some people come to God and you might say, I'm poor, but God, you say you give good gifts, will you give me money? Or if you come to God and say, God, I've managed to secure lots of money in my life so you know I can be trusted when it comes to salvation, you're missing the mark. You know what all the faithful had in common? Their bank accounts were not in common, but their humility was. Their faithfulness to God was. I've met a lot of people, sometimes like me, who think they're poor. Right? I told you a few weeks ago about my school loans, the fact I don't own my house, the debt that my wife and I are in. And if I'm not careful, I might think that my obedience that the Holy Spirit produces in me to God is of my own doing. And so I get entitled. God, I'm keeping your laws. I think I'm doing what you want me to do. Heck, I was smart enough to accept you as Lord and Savior. Where's my payback? <laughs> I know you say I've inherited the kingdom, but you and I both know you got the resources to bless me, God. So are you going to bless me? And we lust after money. I don't know how many, I don't really know many, many rich, rich people. But if I had to hazard a guess, sometimes I wonder if rich people get self-entitled and self-sufficient like us poor people whenever we get a really good dollar. I've made this money myself with my hard work, and though I have the means to further God's kingdom in a material way because we live in a material world, and that's what's necessary, since it's mine, I'm going to withhold my money. And God's saying, your money? <laughs> Who gave you the hands to work, who gave you the job, who made you have dominion over the earth, who made you steward over my money, and who wants his people serving on the missions field to be able to survive. I do, and I gave you that money so that you might be faithful and support it. Because in God's economy, years from now, when you get to heaven, God's not going to ask us how much money we made. He's going to ask us, what did our faith do? How did our Faith in Christ compel us to act with our money. Are we humble? Were we humble? Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we see it all over in the scriptures, we see it all over in ourselves. 
people who come before you think that somehow we might impress you. That we might be better than the next guy. Father, Jesus didn't die for just the people who really needed it. Because we all really needed it. He died for everyone. And Father, that should equalize and level out the proverbial playing field before you that there is nobody, not one of us, that has greater clout than the other, but that we're all on equal footing. Father, would you show us how this humility plays out practically, Father? Are there people that we know that are Christian, but we second-guess them, we diminish them, we belittle them, we think lowly of them? Father, would you give us a heart that's humble, so that we might see the brother and sister in Christ as you see them? That you love them so much that you voluntarily laid down your life to save them as well as you've saved us? Father, would you help us to be wise, generous, and loving with our money? Would you remind us daily that it is your money? You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You own all the people on earth. And you own our bank accounts. So, Father, would you help us to do what you want us to do with it? To be humble with you. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we thank you and we ask and pray these things in Jesus. Amen.